I want to look at Isaiah 55. It's one of those passages in Isaiah that a lot of people know, at least parts of it. Um, and I would like to read the whole chapter, but um, I'll leave that to you. Uh, I'll read what will be the center of what I'm looking at um, in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Um, in good fashion, religion has taken those last words I said and applied them to God in a way it was never intended. And in fact, th this passage has been used to give us a greater sense of separation from God. He becomes a remote, an unknowable God. Uh, have you noticed how it happens? Because I've, over my lifetime, I've heard this a gazillion times. Something happens to which you have no answers. A and the first thing that's coming out of your mouth is, why does God allow this? Why did God bring that, you know, whatever? A and, and then the pastor, you know, goes into a, a lower voice of misery and, and um, he looks at you solemnly and says, well, his, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, which means you'll never understand God. He's there, but don't even hope to have him as a friend. You don't know what the heck he's doing most of the time. And so suck it up and, and just trust him. And we all go on our way thanking God for such a glorious God we worship. Yeah. Um, do, does that make sense? Have I interpreted correctly what most people think? That um, God is this closed door mystery. So when I need him, especially at, at the grind of life, when the rubber hits the road, this is all you get. My thoughts are not your thoughts. So I won't tell you. I, I won't talk to you. It's a, and of course, God then is blamed for every evil under the sun. Anything that happens is bad. Well, of course, God did it, and we don't understand. Because what we call evil, God somehow calls that good. Um, when we're in pain, he somehow enjoys that. And, and so his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. Um, you better get used to having this God. You never know him. He's beyond knowing, but just get used to him. Um, would you take that and flush it down the toilet somewhere? Um, that is the most stinking religion um, that, that destroys our relationship with God. And without any, really, I'm not going anywhere special with this, just to read the chapter, if, if only people would read what goes before something, what goes after something, and sometimes read a good few chapters of what goes before, they're, they're very few difficult verses. They just, like a fillet of beef, they just open up before you. And um, this one 
in actual fact is speaking of the glorious, limitless, covenant love of God. It's speaking of the grace and the goodness of God, the unspeakable um, compassion of God toward us. Um, that if you want to know what are the thoughts that are far beyond our thoughts, we are speaking of the love of God. He is saying God's love is infinitely beyond your wildest thoughts. If it's speaking of the ways of God, his compassion, are ways that just leave us speechless. And where my compassion, I push it to the limit, and it's rather nothing compared to God's compassion, which is so infinitely more. That is what this passage is about. And it ends up with a fantastic image, prophetic image, of the incarnation. And we'll, we'll probably get there. And so it begins, and I won't stop here. This is just the introduction to the chapter. Uh, and it begins, which many of you know, Ho, everyone who, who thirsts, come and drink of the waters. Come and buy food without money. Amen. Yeah. It's, um, we all know what it means, but it's kind of strange that um, he's saying, buy it, but it's free. How can you buy something that's free? Um, well, in a nutshell, when you buy something, it is a declaration of ownership. If you buy, you, you're, you're in the store and you pick up the item, and in picking it up, you are saying, this is mine. And it's it's already yours. If someone tried to take it out of your shopping cart, there'd be a little fight because that's already mine. I, I put my hand on it. I took it. It belongs to me. So buying indicates belonging. It, it indicates something that is uniquely mine. It's already got my name on it. I got it. I put my hand on it. Oh, and then, but you have to go through the uh, teller and pay for it. Um, that's how we do it. You declare this is mine, it belongs to me, now we go and hand over the cash to make it mine. So what Isaiah is saying, what I'm going to tell you is that which is yours. It's already got you, so, so go and put your hand on it for goodness sake. Go, go and grab it, take it, it's yours. And, and P.S., there's nobody in the teller that you can walk straight on out. It's yours. It's free. Someone has already paid for you to have this. And so go and enjoy it. And so that that's the introduction, which already is leaving us a little wobbly that this doesn't make sense in my world. We're already having a beginning of an introduction to my thoughts and not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. Your ways insist that you pay for something. If you don't pay for it, you'll be arrested. So you can pick up all you want and put it in your shopping cart. If you don't pay for it, no, that doesn't work in our world. Well, let me introduce you to the God whose thoughts are not our thoughts. Let me introduce you to him whose ways look like stealing. Take it and walk away. It's yours for free. Now, he's addressing this to basically everybody. I mean, how he begins, ho, everyone who thirsts. Um, that's not quite how we would say it today, but um, it, it's almost like a hey, you. 
hey you. It's as if he's standing in the marketplace and just out to, hey you, uh, do you want something for free? Do you want to eat food for nothing? Do you want to drink? And it will be real stuff, not the stupid junk food that you're paying for. So you're paying for something that's no good, and I'm offering you something for free, which is going to be life to your soul. And I like the way the message translates that. Um, what he does in this is paraphrase. But, but he said, um, come and buy that which is uh, food that will sustain you and um, be good for you. And instead of spending your whole life on junk food and, and on, um, what's he call it? The candy floss that you get in, it's, it's air. There's nothing more to it. Uh, it's a very good translation of that. That's what he's saying. So he addresses that to everybody, and in part of addressing it, he calls them wicked and unrighteous. Unrighteous means you have no known relationship with God. You, you, you don't know him. And wicked, it's a word that we use um, in other manners of speech, wick, uh, wicked or wicker, and wicker is twisted. If you have a wicker chair, it's the um, pieces of wood that are twisted. And he said the people that are twisted, the people that are, are groping in the dark, they don't know me. He said, my, my word pierces the darkness and says, all you that are thirsty, hungry, and you're, you're spending your life treasures on that which is junk. And it is giving you, it's killing you. And I'm giving you food that will sustain you and, and be full. So now what does he say to, and this is very important, what does he say to the wicked? He said, come, and then he says, turn to me. Now, this is uh, another great word, and I hope you'll get it. Um, In the New Testament, this word is metanoia. In the Old Testament, the word is teshuva. And remember that word, teshuva. Um, it's a fan, it's, I don't know how many times it is mentioned in the Old Testament, teshuva. And it, it's actually the word turn is a good translation of the word. Unless you get one of your older Bibles and then it will say repent. But um, it, it turn, that's really what the word is saying. Because the word describes action. See, if, if I would ever degenerate my mind to go to the word repentance, um, well, that is understood by most people as a mental thing. It's an attitude. It's a feeling. I repent. I regret it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done it. All that's in my head. I'm doing nothing about it. I'm just sitting here wailing. And... um that, that's most people's idea of repentance is uh, beat your breast. I'm unworthy. I'm no good. Well, it's, it's an opinion you're holding of yourself. The word turn demands you do something. Don't sit there wailing. Do something. And so when we come to this word, it is primarily speaking of turning toward God. It's an action of turning toward God. <clears throat> rather than I'm sorry that I made a mess of life. That's going to lead you nowhere. So you're sorry. I'm glad you're sorry. But um, that doesn't do anything. 
Uh, and so this word, anukos metanoia, too, has nothing to do with saying, I'm sorry. It's got nothing to do with saying, I've done something to prove that I'm unworthy. No, none of that, none of that. <coughs> this is awakening up. And as metanoia is to see, uh, it's a radical change of mind which involves seeing what the truth is. And this is much the same. I see. Yes, I've indeed <coughs> come to the end of my rope. I've indeed done some very foolish things, but I don't stay there. <coughs> I turn to God and I turn to him um, because of the kind of God he is. Oh. Many times the people who would use the word repentance, they don't turn to God because of the way they think he is. Yeah. Um, this emphasizes that God is <coughs> not wanting you. He doesn't want you to focus on evil. He doesn't want you to focus on sin and failure. He doesn't want you to focus on senses of unworthiness. He wants you to turn toward him. And so, yes, I've seen. I now have a new evaluation of my life. What, what I never even thought about putting a definition to, I just lived. Now the lights have turned on and I see that I have been in a state where I have separated myself from God or would attempt to, but I've seen also the kind of God he is, and therefore I turn to him. That is the basic meaning of this word, teshuva. But, okay, having said that, teshuva describes someone coming to their senses. It means eyes wide open. I get it. I see it. I see the big picture. I like it that the word also means a response. So I've seen, and I've seen the kind of God he is, and therefore my response is, and they say, I don't sit there and say it, my response is that I turn to him with expectancy. Um, it's also a word that is used to describe a reply to a message that's given. So in the light, the Holy Spirit gives you a message. And it's a message concerning the beauty of God, the incredible love of God that's beyond your thoughts and beyond your ways, and you don't get it, it's too big. But you'll turn to it, and you turn to it with expectancy. Um, and so we, we turn to see, to know, to be embraced, to be restored. All those are words that come up in this, this one word. It's a word of restoration. Um, if, if, if I go to a strange town, you can be sure if I don't have ways with me, I'm going to get lost. It's the, it's in my genes. And, um, if you ask, you know, how to get out of here, they, they will take you back almost to the place where you left the road. That's where you got lost. From that, the next step off that road, you were lost. And you got luster and luster and luster as you kept going into. Now you've got to retrace your steps. Only this word is a restoration to that. It restores you. It's the same word that David used in Psalm 23. And I bet we've read it a million times and never realized what he was saying. 
he is saying um, he restores my soul. It's the word teshuva. He restores me. He turns me around. He takes me back. He brings me to what I was always intended to live. That's the way it is. It's interesting also that in the Hebrew language, this word is used to describe spring. When the buds begin to come, the birds begin to sing, and all of creation is waking up, they call that teshuva. It is spring. It's the return of life into a world of winter. Um, they also use it for a few days from now. They will use it for New Year. At New Year, that's Teshuva. It is the restoration of the year. It's the cycle of restoring. Now we've got a brand new year and brand new opportunities. That, that, that's this word, and I like it. it. It means I leave the old with all its problems. I, I leave a closed door on what's past, and I, I stand into the new. The best we get in our Western world is New Year resolutions. But, of course, that spins back on you. You've got to resolve it. This is an act of God, Teshuva. It's going to carry you into a new creation. And, and it was addressed specifically to those who feel, who see themselves as beyond hope. And that's why he specifically says the wicked and the unrighteous. You've screwed up your life. You don't know where to turn. You come to a dead end. You're at the end of your rope. There's a sense of futility attached to it. I'm going around in circles. I'm going nowhere. And the only God this person knows is an angry God who's going to punish them. And so this calls them away from a life of wandering aimlessly and feeding on air, you know, on, on the candy puff stuff from the circus. You, that's all you've got. Turn towards, set your eyes on God who is offering you, and I, what he says here, an abundant pardon. I'm not just going to say, I forgive you. It is an abundance, which answers to that word we've seen in, in the New Testament, receive. When Jesus received sinners and ate with them. And we often just leave out the word receive and get down, he ate with sinners. But the word receive means I am waiting for to welcome my, my dearest friend, and I can't wait till they get here. I, I've got their seat at the table already prepared. I know their favorite drink. I know everything. I can't wait for them to get here. And I'm pacing at the door because they look like they're going to be late. And I'm looking up the road. Are they coming yet? Are they coming yet? And when I see them, I burst out and I hug them and I hold them and they do the same to me. They're my dearest friend. That's the Hebrew and the Greek word for receive. I receive. Our word receive is, is a very uh, wimpy word compared with what it actually means. And, and this teshuva means I turn to God to be received. Grace upon grace upon grace, never ceasing. Now, you have sat there looking at me. The fact is what I've just said is the last thing that religious human logic would ever come up with. You know, 
And we should all appropriately leap in the air and say, this is incredible, (laughs) that our God, who has been revealed fully in Jesus Christ, does not have to be persuaded to abundantly forgive us. Abundantly means over the top. Coffee spilled into the saucer, you know, it's... um, when I was in one part of Africa and um, I was leaving and they, they tried to tell me how much they appreciated me and they said in the pidgin English of Africa, they said, we love you plenty too much. Uh, and, and that's exactly what is here. It's not just pardon, which would be enough, but abundant pardon, plenty too much. It, it, it's it's the overspill. Um So God, I mean, snuggle down into this. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the author of Toshiba. Toshiba. Um, Did you really hear what I said? He's the author of it. Anyone who uses the word repentance says that you are the author of repentance, and your work of repentance will change the mind of God. See how blasphemous that is? Here it says God is the author of Teshiva. He's the one that enlightens you as to who he is. And your response to that, which comes with the enlightenment, is I turn to him, turn to him, toward him, to receive this. And so it doesn't buy, Teshiva doesn't buy God's attention. It doesn't excite his love. God is not led to love us because we have Teshiva. Rather, it is his love and goodness that leads us to Teshiva. Do you get that? Okay, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Yet how come that I hear so often that it's our repentance that leads us to the goodness of God. It isn't. God's goodness comes to us when we're up to our earlobes in trouble and in muck, and his goodness leads us to Teshiva, which is to dare, yeah, dare to turn to God and expect an abundance of pardon. That's the way it is. So, He's the author. Okay, we are at this moment. We are in the middle of a current of God's love, which is always moving us toward Teshiva. It's always, because this never stops. You see, this is not one moment 40 years ago when you got saved. This is how we live. Teshiva is constantly We're always living in the boldness of daring in our failures and missing the point and everything else. We come boldly to the throne of God. It says because Teshiva, the Spirit, is always with us. And he is a current that is always moving us toward this. He's the author of it. Um... And that's where faith comes in. We, Toshiva dares to see God as he is and turn to him. And the response involves faith. 
Faith doesn't come from me. Faith comes from seeing who God is. Amen. And, and it's, it's turning because I've seen a glimpse of God's love and I dare to trust it. Now, see, did you notice this? He says, and, and, um, let him return, that's to Shiva, to the Lord. He will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon now, the next word is for, for, okay, you know English. In that sense, it would be better maybe to say because. He will return to the Lord, the Lord will have compassion on him, our God, he will abundantly pardon as I've just said, which is absolutely outside the logic of any religion. Yeah. Well, when, why, why would you turn to God and expect that? For, for, or because my thoughts are not your thoughts. Yeah. You can relax. I, I don't expect you to take in the vastness of God's love, because his thoughts are not your thoughts. Our thoughts of love are so flimsy, so limited, so pathetic. Um, but I guess it's a good place to start. But I'm telling you that you can turn to God and expect to meet an abundance of pardon, an abundance of welcome, because... You should know that his thoughts are not your thoughts. So discard your thoughts. Your thoughts say I'm no good. Your thoughts say I'm unworthy. Discard them. Of course you should discard them because your thoughts are not his thoughts. You're off base right away. My, nor am I your ways my ways. The way you do things. And I don't want to hammer this. So I suppose I do it all every week but you know to to see people that that they look at the way the way of approaching god and it is all it, it is groveling it is the it is announcing to god my thoughts that's my way it's the way i do it i tell god i'm no good I tell God I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy, I don't deserve it. And then any confession of sin, if we could even call it that, is just a wail of, I did it, I did it, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's another way, it's a way of approach that you flush down the toilet. It's useless. Did you come from the same background as me? And that's a serious question. Because in that background... It was the more wretched you present yourself to to say that you are the, the dirtiest, lousiest piece of nothing that ever crawled out of a mud. And I, I know, God, I don't know how you love me. I don't know how you care for me. It's all a... And that's supposed to be piety. That's supposed to be holiness. You're a godly person. No, you're not. You're a liar. And you're lying to God about God. He says, because he is this God that has love that is beyond anything your thoughts can comprehend, 
because of that, you turn to him. That's the reason you turn. So you don't turn to him and say, would, would you sit down and discuss my thoughts? No, your thoughts are... Uh, God's thoughts and ways are in galaxies of the universe. Yours hang around on rooftops. You, you follow? And I'm speaking of myself. Sometimes I think I've seen a great revelation. And, and But put it in perspective, I've hardly seen anything. You see, and so he says, for my thoughts are not that. That's the reason you dare to come to him. Nor are your ways my ways. No, he doesn't like all that nonsense stuff you do. And then he says in the next, for is there again, because as the heavens are higher than the earth. And when the Old Testament says heavens, it's talking about outer space. It's, it's talking about the galaxies, planets, he says, as the heavens are high, higher than the earth, so are my ways, the way I do things, higher than your ways. And my ways are not pushing you down to grovel. It's not his way. His way is to run to you and put his arms around you while you still stink of the pigs and kiss you all over. That's his way. It's not our way. See... Uh, okay, we, his thoughts are not our thoughts. Our concepts of God are so utterly poverty stricken. What, what is a thought, my thoughts? Or I could put it this way. What, what is God thinking about you right now? Uh, that's a serious question probably determines exactly how you've lived for the last 40 years. What does the Father say to Jesus in the Spirit when he looks at Wesley? It's interesting that he knows us so well that he does talk about us and think about us. Do you remember that incident in the Acts of the Apostles when... The fellow tried to cast out demons uh, and um, didn't know what he was doing. And the demon laughed at him. Do you remember what the demon said? Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who the heck are you? Yeah. The devil looks at his people and says, I don't know you. But God the Father turns to God the Son in the Spirit and says, I, I know everything there is to know about Jennifer. Shall we talk about her? Think about that. Think about it. Yes, yes. See, what, 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 what are these thoughts? of God? God has thoughts. And when I say thoughts, I don't mean the endless chatter that goes on in our minds, which is simply drifting emptiness. I mean... A true heart thought that gathers around it the intention, the plans, and the desires of the person. Yes. So you can say thoughts are inner words. They're my inner desires which are put to unheard words. Um, my intentions, 
my purpose, my, and how I imagine that, that's all part of my thoughts. Thoughts many times come um, in pictures. Thoughts come in living color. The, the, sometimes you hear yourself talking. Other times you see pictures. There's my opinions, everything I think about you all. The attitude I have from you then comes from that. And, and these thoughts are not nothing. You say, well, I only thought it. Ah, when you thought it, you built a house inside your body. You say, well, I didn't intend to do that. Tough. It's the way your body works. You should be educated. You, you can't go around thinking thoughts and saying it was nothing. I only thought it. As if it would only be bad if I actually did it. No, Jesus made that plain. He said, it's the same. You, you, and it's an actual fact that it takes up real estate. I like that expression. It means it takes up real physical space inside your body. And it builds it in different places in your body. Um, it's real. This is all very scientific. That when you think a thought, it actually builds a place in certain organs of your body. And, and they, it, it creates pathways. Pathways that are a must. That's the only way. It's that word. We've talked of it before. Necessary. It's the must. And usually attached to something uh, highly d divine. It's... And so the thoughts I think become the must. I must say this. I must do this. I must go there. Why? Because you've been thinking about it for the last six weeks. And it's built a pathway. And the next step of the pathway is you speak. And the next step of that is you do something. That's, that's thoughts. So when the thoughts of God, the thoughts of God is who he is in relation to you and the pathways he's building in your life so that you might know him and enjoy him he's actually thinking that thinking it it's that it's going to be fleshed out in behavior what god thinks about you he's going to be doing is doing actually you know, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. As God thinks, so he is. And God is love and he is good. So his thoughts about you are not a response to something you just did or said. Because if that was the case, he'd have a case of depression. Um if, if God thought thoughts about what I just did, his only thoughts are thoughts of restoration, thoughts of abundant pardon, thoughts of love, putting his arms around me and carrying me on through life. That, that's his thoughts. In fact, it's my actions that are response to his thoughts. He, he doesn't respond to what I've done, logically. <laughs> yeah. His thoughts are not our thoughts. You see, if you say something about me that's bad, I might not respond to you face to face. 
but boy, would I think about it for the next 10 weeks. And it would build inside of me and build inside of me. And it would exaggerate itself inside of me until the next time I meet you, I'm ready to murder you. And you've even forgotten you said it. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And he's, he, his thoughts always meet us with an abundance of pardon. His thoughts about us always meet us with a love that will never let us go. And it's, well, we don't get used to it. We never get used to it. And that's why I am speaking what might be interpreted as an evangelistic message, but it isn't. It's to all believers as well as all mankind because we we never get over this. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and yet we continually think they are. So... His, his thoughts about me lead me to teshuva, yeah. to metanoia. Oh, come on. That's it. It's his idea. There, there's, in, in the thoughts of God, there is this must. It's that necessary motion toward us. Love is a verb. Yeah. It's, it's acting. It's, it's never passive. And it's always moving toward us. God wills to be himself in our lives. Now, again, that is unknown. What I've just said, that God thinks of us with love and that He, his thoughts will uh, become flesh in us that's unknown in religion, especially in the world of paganism. Um, I, I've told you before of sitting down with, with leaders around the world, and um, especially with witch doctors in Africa, and, and they will tell you it's no secret. You know, I, I among the Zulus, I asked. The question of a, a witch doctor, you know, how, how I want to talk to your God. How, how do I do that? And he looked at me as if I was stupid. And he said, God won't talk to you. He said, God, God doesn't care about you. And, and as he went on, I, I, their God is remote, cold, Indifferent, Mm -hmm. disinterested, doesn't know your name. Mm -hmm. Except when there's something to punish you for. Then he really gets excited. (laughs) And in some other places where they have a multitude of gods, every one of the gods are bullies. If you you can go back, if if you've got that kind of mind... Go back to the Greek gods, the Roman gods. They're a bunch of spoiled kids. They're they're bullies. Delighting to interfere with our lives in order to give us trouble and pain. Then then I said, that's that's paganism. You know, there's a lot of parallels to that in how I was raised. You know, God does 
cruel things, so they tell me. And it's all for my good, of course. That, you know, that's why they say, well, his ways are not always. No, his ways are to make you mean. He's mean to you. He upsets you. Just when you thought you had life by the tail, he kills the cat. You know, it's... David said on another occasion, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars that you have set in place. What is man? Come on. That you are mindful of him? Wow. The son of man that you care for him? <laughs> How majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. And then I look at creation and the galaxy heavens. And I feel like I'm smaller than a speck of dirt spinning in space. And you... Are mindful of me? Amen. You you don't even care for us. You care for me. Amen. Another translation is, "What is man that you take thought of him? Yeah. The son of man that you care for him." The message says, "Then I look at my micro self, <laughs> and I wonder, why do you bother with us?" Why do you take a second look in our direction? He thinks about you. And he thinks love. Because he plans to do it. That word, first translation, mindful. It means you pay attention. You think on, you meditate. I mean... This isn't God gives you a passing glance. It isn't that he calls an angel to say, look up that name. I know it's somewhere in U.S., you know. And the word care means to observe. It means to pay attention. It means actively entering into a relationship of favor and love and action the very opposite of what the gods of religion do. Yes, he does interfere with our lives, but never to give us pain, never to cause hurt. And to the extent he says he's got every hair of your head numbered. Psalm 139, in the Passion Translation, He says, every single moment you're thinking of me, how precious and wonderful to consider that you cherish me constantly in your every thought. Oh God, your desires toward me are more than the grains of sand on every shore. And when I wake up in the morning, you're still thinking of me. Could I I say God's fascinated with us? With you, I have to say you because it isn't a general us. It's each one of us. Every detail of our life interests him. 
Right, and I, I mean it right down to what you do in the kitchen, cleaning house, every detail. How many times does Jesus come to people and say, what things? You know, Woman, why are you weeping? Mm-hmm. That, that, that's not just a throwaway, a throwaway question. He is looking into the eyes of this woman and he's saying, why are you weeping? Tell me, I want to know that. Mm-hmm. On the road to Emmaus, you look so sad. What's gone wrong? Tell me about it. Tell me. I want to hear it through your lips. Ah, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And again from the message. For I know the thoughts and plans. See the difference there? It's not just plans. The Hebrew is thoughts. I know the thoughts and the plans that I have for you. Thoughts. And plans for welfare or looking after you. Peace, not for evil. To give you hope in your final outcome. That's true while I'm talking right now. See, I picked up on the thoughts of God. Of what he wanted you to know he was thinking. Come on. And they call that preparing a message. But it's, you pick up on the thoughts of God. Yeah. And what is he thinking about this gang of us here? Oh, it's his thoughts. Mm. Well, I pick them up and I'm telling you. See, that's what it is. All his ways, all his thoughts are loving kindness. It's love. It arises from the isness of God, his being. He has no thoughts that are the pressure of external forces. That's what I was saying a moment ago. You say something, you do something, that's an external force that gives rise to a whole river of thoughts in me, uncontrolled by external pressures. That's what we think about. But no external pressure is behind what God thinks. God thinks and he he changes the external his his thoughts um and he he thinks about us out of the self-imposed obligation he didn't have to think anything about us didn't even have to think creation into being and it's all self-imposed he takes it on himself And it is ultimately to give himself to us, to have relationship, to overcome all that would separate us. So he shows himself to the wicked and the unrighteous and says, turn, turn to Shiva. Why? Why would I turn? I'm lost. I don't know who I am. It's futile. I'm getting nowhere. Turn because... That's how you think of your life. The way I think is entirely different. And that gives you reason to turn. And I will abundantly pardon. All all his thoughts are movements. They're, they're, how can I put it, all-powerful energy of love that move inside our darkness and all the demented thoughts 
of our wickedness. Now hear this one. I said it's the gift of God to Shiva, as is metanoia. It's the gift of, it has to be. Because yeah, I'm coming back. My thoughts, his thoughts, if I'm going to take the logic of my thoughts, I would never turn to him. Amen. I never would. Yeah. So God has to give me the gift of Tushiva. He has to give me the gift of turning. Um, you see, it's possible to be sorry for sin, obviously. But at the same time, hear me, you can be sorry for sin, big time. And at the very self-same moment, shy away from being accepted. Yeah. You think about it. I can say I'm a sinner, but never dare think of being in the embrace of the Father. Let let me introduce you to all of us. That in in the sickness of our, our sin, we believe that rejection is a safe zone. In some sick way, I feel at home there because it fits how I think about myself. I think I should be rejected. I'm convinced I should be. That's my thoughts. That's my ways. It takes a gift of God to dare to believe that I can respond to him whose ways are not my ways and whose thoughts are not my thoughts. And so when we've screwed it all up, we stand amazed before God if we've heard, but still so slow to turn. We accept rejection. It's easy. We're at home. I can talk rejection. I can see myself rejected. I can loathe myself. That's easy. But I'm very slow. I'm awkward. I think that's a pretty embarrassed awkward at the idea of being accepted with a full, abundant pardon when my thoughts are saying that punishment is right. Punishment is fitting for me. Love, acceptance, Abundance, plenty too much, pardon. I, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. I, I'm, I'm sort of. Sometimes it's more than just awkward. I'm terrified by it. We, we've had interesting people come to this building. That because the hill country, well, Texas, let's say Texas, it is super legalistic I, I remember the first time I came here I was living in New York and I was traveling all over the states on meetings and never been never been to Texas never been to the south they warn you against the south in New York and, and um, 
That's right. They said it's the Bible Belt. You never get anywhere with them. And um, I landed in Dallas, and I went to get a cup of coffee in this place. But it was it was a bar and a coffee shop, and you know, in airports. And and I saw this fellow, and he he said to the bartender, "I want a Baptist tea." And he served him beer, but in a glass with a straw, so that he could sit looking as if he had tea. When, and I, I, I nearly threw up. I said, "Give me New York City, where, where, yeah, where, in New York, they don't cover sin. Their sin, they say it to your face." And I said, whenever I went, this is back hundreds of years ago. And I said, when I go to Texas, I smell hypocrite. I smell Pharisee. It stinks. It's because the, we, we are so at home in, in being rejected, but putting on a face that everything's okay. We, you see, we plain don't expect this, and I hope if I keep talking, you'll get this. <laughs> that we did not expect him to call us to turn. Teshiva is not a word that fits here. He should call us to beat ourselves, to curse ourselves, to loathe ourselves, to grovel, lay flat in the mud. He doesn't. Flings his arms around us, kisses us all over. I can't face him for that. When, when the younger brother came home, he came home very bold. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Oh yeah, we can do that. Let's have a groveling sin. I can do that. But when the father said, you are my son, I don't know what to do with that. It, it, his thoughts are contradicting my thoughts. I said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I feel good about that. That's what I deserve. I'm no good, you see. I, and he cuts right across it without apology, interrupts me, and says, you are my son. I don't know what to do with it. Think this deeply. It's true. We don't know what to do with God's love. To begin with, you're not at home in that love. You feel awkward. It doesn't fit how you've been thinking about yourself. It's a fantastic verse in Psalm, Psalm number three, where David said, you might remember, you are my glory and the lifter of my head. Oh, we sing that, good old charismatics. Um, Shut up, listen to it. What does it mean? When it says, you are the lifter of my head. David had royally messed up. I mean, if you want to study a dysfunctional family, study David. He was as dysfunctional as you can get with all his kids. And then there was the Bathsheba affair a couple of three years before. And after that, nobody trusted him. He's a mess. So when... His son Absalom sees the opportunity to take the whole throne and 
David knows what's going on. And then he catches this, catches a glimpse of the unspeakable, unthinkable pardon, mercy, grace, love, goodness of God. And he, he says, he says, we begin to psalm, if you remember, many that say of me, there's no hope for me in God. That's how it begins. And then he says, but thou, O Lord, art a shield to me. Yes. You are. You care about me enough to shield me. You are my glory. I don't have any glory. Everything's been thrown in the mud. But you are my glory. And then he says, and the lifter of my head. What does that mean? It means that looking at how he'd come to this position, David cannot look God in the eye. He's ashamed. Can't look at you. Can't look at you. I'm sorry. I've blown it for years. And David said, he puts his hand under my chin and he lifts me to look me in the eye. You are the lifter of my head. Amen. Amen. God's into that. He hates religion that puts you on the ground. When John, and I mean John, well, John was his best friend. But when John saw the ascended Christ, he says, I fell at his feet as one dead. He was there, how spiritual, how wonderful. He's groveling at his feet. What? And the ascended, risen Christ got down on his knees and picked him up. Yes. Ezekiel says, stand up, man, so I can talk to you. God is not into groveling in the dust at his feet. Yes. He lifts your head. Look at me. Let love hold your eyes. It also speaks... How does this all work out in the big picture? It's the incarnation. See, how, how, can, how can I ever understand salvation if my thoughts are not his thoughts? And he, his thoughts are just one blazing volcano of love. And my highest form of love is a flickering match. How am I going to get it? When you speak to most people about the love of God, the Trinity, the Incarnation, you you might be speaking of a religious museum that's irrelevant to today. But you see, this is what God does. He makes himself approachable, Mm -hmm. touchable, near to you at a sensory level. He becomes one of us. So that I meet a man, 100% a man, who at that self-same moment is 100% God. And in that man I meet with God. God has come to me. Now that's what the end of that chapter is all about. Amen. He says that as the heavens are high above the earth. That's where his thoughts and ways are. Then he says that from the high above the earth, there comes down to the earth rain and snow. And it covers the earth. 
but then it returns, moisture returns, but as it returns, it leaves behind all the fruit that is coming down achieved. Do you follow me? Especially snow full of lots of things that make things grow. But rain too comes down and it soaks the earth. But then as the sun comes out, it returns, it ascends. Then he said, my word, that I I send my word. What word? The word that comes out of his thoughts that we cannot comprehend. The word that is there inside of God and yet separate from God. God the Son is absolutely one with God the Father. The Father is in the Son. The Son is in the Father. Everything the Father ever thinks about you is in the Son. And everything the Son thinks about you is in the Father. And yet the Father is not the Son and the Son is not the Father. And so the Father sends the Son. But in sending the Son... He's coming himself because he's in the Son. And the Spirit is in the Son. And so in the face of Jesus, I am met with the fullness of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The thoughts of God, the ways of God that are beyond my intellectual working out, they've come down to the earth. And they're sitting across the table drinking coffee with me. My word, which proceeds out of my mouth, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that whereunto I sent it. And what was that? That all the thoughts of God would actually penetrate my blackened, broken mind. God would think his thoughts inside my head. God became human and thought the thoughts of God. So the being God was seen in a human. And that human came inside of me by the Spirit. I wish many commentators and pastors would read the New Testament. Because they stay in that Old Testament and have the same questions that the Old Testament had, which had no answers. This is one of them. They didn't know what to do with this, so they said, well, it means everything that goes wrong in life, it's the thoughts of God and the ways of God. No, there's another verse, you know. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, never entered into the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Oh, yes, says religion. That's it. We just don't know him. We've never seen him. We can't imagine him until we get to heaven when we die. Because they've never read the New Testament. Does anybody know it's new because it's new? Come on. The New Testament is not the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of questions. It's full of signposts. It's pointing, but we're not there yet. And we don't know where we're going. That's the Old Testament. The New Testament says, we've arrived. Everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled. The word has come. Amen. I said this before, but 
the word. It's an interesting title to Jesus, the word. He is saying at one level that everything, everything, everything the Father is and everything the Father thinks and everything the Father intends is in me. I am one word that encompasses everything that God is. As I said before, one drop of the Pacific, he's saying, is the whole Pacific. In Christ, he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, you've seen God, you've touched his thoughts, you've tasted of his words. He's no longer up beyond the clouds. He now participates fully in your humanity. <laughs> he came down to the earth. And as soon as he came down, life was everywhere. I mean, we here living in Texas know all about that. You, you walk across the lawn and it crackles under your feet. Because there's no life left in anything. Everything is dead. Everything's burned to a cinder. And then you get a gully washer. Amen. The rain comes down and there's puddles and there's minor floods. And then it's gone. But it's left behind a paradise. Yes. We never knew that. that. And it didn't take two days either. It just, ow, everything's green, everything's... That's what this is talking about. My word shall not return empty. Jesus did not ascend saying, well, I, I hope somebody will make a decision tonight. <laughs> and I'm serious. What kind of God do we have? There's a holy trinity biting their fingernails waiting for the next decision card to arrive. He'd... He did not return empty any more than that gully washer returned to the clouds empty, left behind a paradise. And that one word who within himself encompasses not only the whole of creation but all that God is now comes to us through the Holy Spirit and penetrates my darkness my eyes have seen, my ears have heard, my imagination has been set on fire because I've seen what he has prepared for those who love him. And of course, you see, that's in the New Testament, though we don't read it, of course. But it says there in 1 Corinthians 2, it actually quotes it. He says, Isaiah said, I has not seen, he has not and I've heard preachers preach on that again, saying it's in heaven, because they won't finish the sentence. In the New Testament, there's more than is in the Old. The Old Testament stops there, because they don't know. They can't imagine. They just know there's something there. Eye has not seen. Yeah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. But in the New Testament, it says, I've not seen, ear not heard. Cannot even imagine. But God has now revealed it to us by his Spirit. Amen. That's the New Testament. Yes. Because it's new. Jesus 
brought about this new creation. The thoughts of God for us became flesh. I can look at Jesus and there are the thoughts of God I cannot think. Even when he died for us. Did you, do you remember in the upper room? He sort of, I'm going away and I'll come back. And, and they said, we want to come with you. Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot come. But I'll be back. Why can't they come? Because the sufferings, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, they're the thoughts of God. And they're so big, all we can do is weep and howl. And we see them. We don't realize what's going on. We don't even know what's happening. No, Jesus said, you can't come. This is something only I can do. But in so doing, I'm placing the thoughts of God in you, walking in that Holy Spirit. And you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses mere head knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Amplified Bible, that you may have the power and be strong to apprehend and grasp with all the saints the experience of that love. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of it? That you may really come to know practically through experience for yourselves the love of Christ, which far surpasses anything you can ever think of. That you may be filled through all your being unto the fullness of God, that you may have the richest measure of the divine presence and you shall become a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself. That's New Testament. That's where all this is going. And then it describes those who are caught up with the ascending word. And, and it reminds me, actually, it's very poetic, but it reminds me of something like the shack. Remember when he walked through the snow and suddenly as he walked, there's flowers and spring comes. He says, so will be my word which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I send it. For you, for, again, for, Meaning, because it's going to produce something. You will go out with joy. You will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth in the shouts of joy before you as you're walking. It happens in front of you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, that stings you, the myrtle will come up. That's life in the spirit. Now, now, Scott. Well, what about after death? I, I don't know. I've never thought about it much. Um, I'm too busy living now. Uh, we, you know, it's, uh, and so. What time is it? Quickly, 
I had, in the last 10 minutes, I've talked of the Holy Spirit. So this is who God is. This is what we're actually sort of getting into, something beyond thought. But those thoughts that are beyond us became flesh in Jesus and then the Holy Spirit. And you can't get this because I know there are some very good people and I mean that, very good people who are just hearing what I'm saying and, well, yeah, it's thoughts that they've never had because they've been taught and taught and taught and taught that all this must be sometime after death. How is it possible that so many, yeah, thousands of people read verses like this and all they can see is hopelessness? What was actually written to make you dance on the ceiling. They see it's hopeless, you know. We never understand his thoughts are above our thoughts. And hang around until you die. Only when you're dying, try not to. And, um, oh, what a messed up. Why is it? If you do not depend entirely upon the Holy Spirit as your teacher... You'll never get this. Uh It will remain thoughts that are not your thoughts. I've got to be so careful here because I want you to understand. Jesus said he was the teacher. Do do you know our English? well, Well, it's sort of English. Educate. You know, educate. You do know that's a Latin word. We put it into English. Do you know what educate means? To lead you out. That which is in you, in you. Education means to take a hold of what is in you and bring it out. Education has nothing to do with putting stuff into you. It's bringing out what is already there. The Holy Spirit is my educator. He's my guide, leads me into all truth. But he doesn't work with my intellect. He only works by revelation, with my spirit, my heart. And therefore, I don't have a list of things I know about, which is the best education in America can do. I've come to the place of knowing personally. I don't know about I know vast difference. And it's the Holy Spirit who causes us to soar into the galaxies Mm -hmm. and dance with thoughts that are not my thoughts. To participate in, again, 1 Corinthians 2, you have the mind of Christ. Education is to bring that out. Holy Spirit is the one who does that. You see, Toshiva and metanoia, repentance, is associated with extreme joy. In um, Luke 15, again, 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 but all the way through Luke 15, it says there is joy in heaven over a sinner who repents. That's, of course, using that word. But every parable 
ends with rejoice with me, I have found. Rejoice with me. So this metanoia, this teshuva, and and it's interesting, Jesus, in in his language that he spoke, which would probably be Aramaic, but it was very close to Hebrew, and and therefore he, he is saying in that list of parables, teshiva, is joy, mm-hmm. <coughs> joy, when uh, someone enters into that, and that joy. <coughs> see, the best religion can do is make you sorry. Seriously, repentance means extreme sorrow. In the Bible, teshiva metanoia means extreme joy. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us this. Um, as it was, the first four centuries of the church, that's all they had. And they were so strong that they could resist the Roman wiping them out by persecution. They emerged the other side, having conquered the Roman Empire. It wasn't until about the fifth century that they put together what we call the New Testament. So that means for 500 years, and some of the best 500 years of the church's history, there was no Bible. Now, please hear me. I believe the Bible, at least in the original manuscripts, I believe it's the inspired word of God. By the time I was 21, I had memorized the New Testament. So don't, don't say I don't believe in the Bible. But how come Jesus never said, go buy a Bible and that will teach you who you are? Yeah. It's the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can teach you who you are. Only! And so we've got a Bible. That's great. But don't you dare replace that Bible with the yeah. But the Holy Spirit with the Bible. But that's what the church did. And sometimes I've seen it in writing. They did. The Holy Spirit's too mystical, you know, too out there. And so we needed a Bible so we could intellectually understand. No, you lost the whole jolly lot. Lost it. Because the church, in practice, in fact, now said Father, Son, and Bible. In in 500 already, Augustine was saying, we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. We founded the church, he can go home. We've had very recent years, I mean historically recent, they said the same thing. We are dealing with a young man right now who is in a Presbyterian school and his final essay to be presented to the school is to prove that the Holy Spirit didn't leave because he is, what, the school is a cessationist. That is, they ceased knowing the Holy Spirit ceased all his gifts, all his presence, he's gone. And anyone now who seeks that or would dare to say it happened, is of the devil. Amazing. So this young man is writing an essay because he's not a cessationist, he's a continuancer. 
Holy Spirit continues. And we, we're coaching him to write that essay. Um, but do you see what I'm saying? We are in the middle of a church that only has a Bible that can tell us about something and leave our intellect to interpret it. It's only the Holy Spirit that can do that. And that's why so many, so many in the church live in the Old Testament. Why? Because it feels good. There's a lot of judgment. and They, they, they don't recognize that that's only... The, when Jesus came, he took all the judgment. The judgment met on him. He cleaned up the Old Testament. He became everything the Old Testament pointed to. But you wouldn't know that if you stood around in the Old Testament and say that the New Testament is too mystical. I don't know. In Christ? What does that mean? Christ in you? I don't get what that means. So just put it on the shelf. So I just thought I'd throw that out. But <laughs> Keep rolling. Keep rolling. But I, I say it not to criticize our brothers and sisters, it is to emphasize to you that by God's grace we have been flung in together that we should trust in the Holy Spirit to be the interpreter of the scriptures to us. You see, I'm not pushing the Bible out. I'm saying yes, but it doesn't come before the Spirit. The Spirit is first. The Spirit is my teacher. The Spirit leads me. He's my educator, bringing out of me all that I am in Christ. And then we will know thoughts that we could never think. We will have a revelation of them. See, Ways that have never occurred to us will be our ways. And what we've never seen, heard, or imagined, we will begin to taste and see that the Lord is good. So get used to having speechless wonder. Standing outside of yourself. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That this marvelous salvation so great a salvation is the truth of truths in Christ through the spirit and we receive that revelation that we shall therein walk all the days of our life amen and amen